Welcome to the podcast that demands ambition, passion, and courage in order to succeed in this mission called life. All you have to do is just pass your limit. Go beyond your restraints by embracing the physical, intellectual, and emotional suck that life will throw at you. I'm your host, Ugo. I do not claim to be the subject matter expert, but I will share my experiences and I'll ask my guests to do the same. The discussions will be guided by honesty and civility. Some episodes will have guests, but most of them will be me and you. No excuses accepted here, people. None. I'm excited to get after it. So without further ado, let's go. My guest today is not exactly like our normal guests that are on active duty. He's been an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps Reserves for 19 years and has a civilian career as a high school math teacher. In his 19 years, he's been mobilized multiple times for combat deployments in Iraq with Task Force Tarawa in Sanging, Afghanistan with uh, 325 and 35. And he also was mobilized for peacekeeping missions in Kosovo. A man that I had the privilege of serving with as his assistant operations officer. He was born in China before immigrating to U.S. when he was five years old. A man of strong character and someone I'm proud to call a mentor and a friend. I'm incredibly excited to welcome Major Ron Liu to the Pass Your Limit podcast. Sir, how are you? Well, doing well. Can't uh, really complain overall. Nice. That's that positive uh, uh, mindset you always have, but I just I hope I can unpack that on this episode, sir. Well, the thing is, um, like, I can complain all I want. The problem is, who's really listening? And the other thing I find people mm-hmm. is, they're like, hey, wait, he's a major and he's complaining. If he can't change things... <laughs> then how can I change things? So it, it has that negative connotation where people get dragged down with. They're like, I'm just a Lance Corporal. And man, that guy up there can't do it. Oh, man, we're screwed. <laughs> right. But it's interesting you say that, though, because like some people push back when I'm trying to be positive and I call it relentlessly positive, positive. And they say, well, negative things happen in the world and just always dwelling on the positive side is not realistic. And what I typically say is, yes, uh, life will happen, but it's all about how we respond to the charge or the task at hand. What do you say to that? Well, absolutely. If you think about it, there are certain things that are out of your control and uh, you can't control those things. And as much as you want to think you have an influence, you can't. So you really have to go ahead and say, hey, look, what can I control here around me? Um, if I can control my attitude, um, if I can control the words I say and the environment around me, uh, maybe that'll make the situation a little bit better. Because, hey, look, we're all in this uh, crap pie, so to speak, and we're all going to take a bite of it. So we might as well be as positive as we can with it. And you'll notice that mm-hmm. um, as you move up the ranks, and you'll notice that all the time when we get orders or we get anything issued, people analyze your words word by word and they're like um the re let's just say the recent thing like the space force what if the secretary of defense right. came out and said hey look we have five uh military services people automatically jump on them like that or what's the unintentional message hey wait a second he said five does that mean space force sure. is going away like 
You know, right. so people hang on to your words and you got to be careful uh-huh. of the words you use and the connotation you use them in because people will come come around and be like, hey, look, th- this is what you said. This is the message we got. So you just really got to be careful. About Interesting. That. So when you say that, are you talking in relation to the impact of negativity on others? Is that what you're saying? Um, yes. Uh, negativity on others, people around you. Um, so it's one of those, uh, you know, when you gather a bunch of troops or people around you or people like, hey, what's your comment on this? That's where people say, hey, look, watch what you say very carefully because you might send out unintentional messages that people are going to start panicking about. Hmm. Have you heard about um, mindfulness before? Um, I have, uh, you know, in, in contexts, uh, you know, in various readings I've read about mindfulness. Um, I, I know that, hey, look, there, there's times when you do have to be mindful about what you're saying. And there's times when you just want to get the message out there. So it's a balance between the two. Mm-hmm. You can't really go through life going, you know, I really shouldn't say that. Then keep your mouth shut when it's people expect something out of you. Uh, cause there's something you said earlier. You talked about, you have to be very careful what you say, pick your words, uh, wisely. And I just don't know how to be consistently like that, you know? So every interaction with a person, you in essence have to pick your words wisely. Like, so in your, um, position as a major, um, when you're speaking with a Lance corporal, a corporal, a sergeant, you have to be very selective with the words you use, as opposed to, I guess, when you're speaking to a colonel, then you have to change your the words you use as well. Can't you be consistent and just be the same person, if that makes sense? Well, you can be consistent um, in terms of the message you send. Um, in terms of the word you use, uh, talking to a Lance Corporal versus talking to a colonel, um, you'll notice that, yeah, there is going to be a big change. You know, the colonel's used to me addressing the way he's used to me addressing. Uh, Lance Corporal might be a little bit nervous to talk to you, so uh, you might want to go ahead and, you know, put him at ease. Um, and, and mm. you know, we talk about, hey, um, you know, do we... <laughs> I hate being talked down upon, if that makes any sense. Like people start all of a sudden right. like breaking out big words. And I look at them, I'm right. like, <laughs> like, uh, like Stephen A. Smith. I don't know if you know who that is. They like bel- you belittle people. You just use like huge words just unnecessarily. Like, why did you say that? <laughs> right, right, yeah. right, right. So um, something like that, you know, like, you know, it, it, hey, look, don't, don't, don't talk, talk down upon me. You know, talk as mm. if we're normal peers speaking, you know, peers or, you know, very like it this way, we can communicate the message we want to get across without sounding very like I'm better than you because I'm using these big SAT words and I should sound smart. Right. That's awesome. We, we derailed. <laughs> I, I know we that did. First one. <laughs> but uh, I just had to get that out because that's that's pretty good stuff right there. I just feel the same way. Don't belittle anyone. Respect everyone. Uh, pick your words wisely. And if you put out respect, I feel like respect comes back. But don't necessarily expect respect, but don't tolerate disrespect is my thing. Well, another thing is, but, yeah, besides don't talking down on someone is, you know, hey, if we can bring someone's vocabulary up, then, uh, you, you know, do that too. Right. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Let's uh, get into the life of Major Lou. And um, for context, I always want to know where did the journey start? I know we already referenced China, but I want to know, okay, the continuum from China to the States and what led you to be an infantry officer? 
Well, uh, my parents immigrated to the United States uh, from China to uh, escape communism. Uh, they were very grateful to come to a country that uh, gave everyone the opportunity to pursue a living and uh, not be persecuted for their uh, birth, social status, or a beliefs about uh, the corrupt government. Um, so mm. as a result, I always grew up being grateful and wanted to give something back to this country that has taken me in, educated me, and uh, allowed me to live the American dream. Um, it was due to wanting to give something back that I decided to enlist in the Marine Corps Reserves, go to college, and uh, become a Marine officer. Hmm. Interesting. So, like, why the reserves? Though? Why didn't you go the active route? Well, um, the only reason why is because uh, without a college degree, I can only enlist in the Marine Corps. So, it's for me, I would figure I might as well go ahead and enlist in the Marine Corps, uh, go to college off the GI Bill or whatever it is, then become uh, an officer. Okay. Tracking, tracking. So why be a grunt? Why did you uh, choose infantry? Well, uh, the first time, it was a mixture of being na naive, uh, teenage ego, and I uh, wanted to test myself against the toughest challenges of being a Marine and an uh, infantryman. As a uh, reserve Marine, I had limited MOS oper options um, that were geographically uh, tied to the location of my home. So I had to be within uh. 50 miles of my home record in New Jersey. Um, so I had the choice of being a mortarman with the infantry or a firefighter with the uh, air wing. So as a teenager, I'm sure you know which one sounded more appealing and challenging. Right, right. So um, the second time around uh, was when I became an officer. My uh, enlisted MOS d didn't carry through. There were no officer mortarmans. Um, so I had to pick another MOS. So this time was more due to loyalty of my Marines and uh, feeling at home in the uh, infantry. Right. Interesting. So... So you said you enlisted first, so that means you went to SOI, School of Infantry, the enlisted side? Correct. I went through uh, boot camp, I went through uh, School of Infantry, and uh, came back came back as a uh, 0341 uh, mortarman. Interesting. So did you have to go through um, IOC, the Infantry Officer Course? Um, I did. I did. Um, so they're two separate things. Uh, for enlisted Marines to become uh, infantrymen, you have to go through school infantry. And for officers, they have to go through infantry's officer's course, which is, like I said, two separate schooling altogether. Um, so they, they really did don't. both? I did both. They don't really, uh, they're, they're not the same thing if you, if you think about it. Right, right, right. Tracking. And it's like, for what I heard, I heard infantry officer school is one of the hardest military schools in the military. What was your experience there? Uh, well, I, I would have to agree with that uh, assessment. Um, so <laughs> let, let me just draw some parallels real quick. Um, so okay. uh, when a Marine enlists and they want to be like infantrymen, yes, they go through boot camp, they go through school of infantry, and they come out with their MOS. Um, officers on the other side are a little bit different. They go through OCS. They're found to be qualified or of you know, of moral values to be an officer. They yes, get sir. commissioned, and they get sent to TBS, the basic school. Uh, the basic school is a six-month course. Uh, from there, after they graduate that, then you go to infantry officer's course and then become an infantry officer. So if I were to go equate those two different you know, lines or lines of training, I would equate that school of infantry is like the officer TBS, mm. except a lot harder with a lot more books and a lot more academics. Wow. So 
we talk about IOC. I know that, you know, there's a lot of mystique and mystery about IOC. Um, a lot of captains were pretty pissed off when females try to go through IOC because they started revealing events in the course. And uh, the, the captain instructors there weren't very happy with it because it allowed students to go ahead and, you know, get a look behind the scenes of what was going to happen. Wow. Um, IOC was a school constructed with a lot of, uh, a lot of mystery. The idea was to challenge the students um, besides being a, uh, Besides being challenging, very physical, demanding, it was unknown. You never know what you were going to get into. Right. You heard an event happening, you didn't know what it was, and they wanted you that way. They wanted to be you on. They wanted you to be on edge, so when you got to it, you didn't know what to expect, and you had to rely on your instincts to go ahead and carry out the course or the exercise for it. So uh, that's why a lot of uh, instructors are very unhappy when. Uh, Marine Corps Times published events and published schedules and said, hey, look, this is what a, uh, a Marine officers go through to become an infantry officer. So they were pretty mad about that. So the best thing I can say, you know, we, we talk about uh, IOC as having this rough, uh, challenging, physically demanding environment, and it's absolutely true. So the, Marine, the IOC is considered the uh, premier school of the Marine Corps. Uh, we get the best instructors, best ranges, access to ammunition, and unlimited combined arm support from AAVs to tanks. Mm. So an example was uh, we had a class of 97 students. And for one range, we had 97 AT-4s, which were anti-tank uh, rockets. Um, everyone shot one, and that in itself was something unheard of in the fleet because an infantry battalion might get an allocation of 6 to 10 in a really good fiscal year. Wow. And here we are. We shot basically um, 10 times as much as what a regular infantry battalion would have gotten. Why is that, though? Because, uh, so, I mean, there's, is there an emphasis on making sure the infantry officers are good to go? Uh, the, well, the idea is that, you know, uh, you know, yes, they're good to go. If you're going to be infantry officer and you're lead these Marines, you're going to go ahead and shoot every weapon we have. And you're going to learn how every weapon is integrated into the overall uh, fighting process. So um, as a result, if you think about it, because of these, you know, high, because of these, uh, everything the Marine Corps puts into it, uh, you know, there were high expectations of a, uh, on the student that, hey, look, there's high expectations that you're going to perform and you're going to go through extreme, you have to put out extreme endurance to get through this course. So, uh, you know, re reasons why, you know, it's an extreme uh, tough course. Right. So. You know, let me give you an, uh, another example of uh, something that they had to go through. Um, so when infantry units are assigned to go on deployments overseas, mm -hmm. uh, the benchmark or the final exam is actually executing a range called Range 400 at 29 Palms in uh, California. So Range 400 is, is this a like live a, company. a workup or something? Is like a workup to it's, the deployment? It's a workup. Okay. It's, this is your test to make sure your workup has been validated. Gotcha. So Range 400 is a live fire company attack range. That's probably one of the most complex with combined arms. So imagine that now you have you know air coming in, you have your uh, artillery coming in, and you have your armor vehicles coming in, then you finally you salt the uh, objectives. So, and this is all live fire. And wow. at the end, you know, you're throwing grenades into pits and you're, uh, you're, you're pushing yourself and you're really running in this course. So you think about that. Uh, so it's an extreme test mm -hmm. to see, make sure an infantry company is ready to go ahead and deploy overseas. So because an extreme test, IOC, the class itself actually runs the course, not only during the daytime, but at nighttime with NVGs. And it's the only unit in the Marine Corps that does that. Wow. So, and the only reason why the, that 
and the IOC class are able to do that is because you have a, a unit of highly proficient, highly trained second lieutenants, and, and, you know, to kind of run through the course. Right. And the amazing part about it is for this unit is that all the maps I used, all the overlays I used uh, were altered to accept a greater, greater risk of, you know, of things like, hey, danger close of indirect fires was closer. Um, and this is all, like this is all was, live fire? Correct. This is all live fire because <laughs> by adjusting those this? danger close uh, limits to us, it was to expose us to be, hey, look, this is what combat's going to feel like. Mm. Feel the stress, feel the intensity, feel the chaos. And guess what? What now, Lieutenant? You're expected to lead. So guess what? You better go. You better, you know, uh, figure this out. Figure out how <sighs> you're going to go ahead amidst all this chaos, control right. your platoon and achieve your objectives. So um, the crazy thing about IOC itself is IOC is the only, IOC has its own gunner, you know, the only, its own gunner. Mm -hmm. It's the only unit with approved range deviations at 29 palms. So uh, when the Marine Corps invests this type of money and time into your training, you have to give it all, your all. Because right. after you graduate, as they say, it's not about you anymore. It's about your Marines. Your training is done. See, that's, that's the thing I love about the Marine Corps. It, it has a great way of indoctrinating Marines to the team atmosphere. As opposed to being selfish, it makes you very selfless as you go through the pipeline. And, I mean, because you referenced a couple of things there and how they revealed a couple events or evolutions in IOC. And I started thinking about the first female officer to graduate IOC, I believe that was in 2017. So that hasn't been so long ago, you know, but I wanted to get your perspective on what you think diversity brings to infantry and having female Marines and in infantry. What does that do to the overall picture? Well, that's uh, kind of a loaded question uh, in terms of, uh, you know, seeing the first female go through um, IOC. I know there was a lot of resistance of females going into the infantry, uh, into the combat arms. Um, so, you know, with with anything, so having a female there is going to make, you know, having females in, into our military is going to make us a better unit. It's going to allow us to provide different capabilities. Uh, we've seen Afghanistan with the Linus program where females right. are able to go in and talk to the females there uh, and get intel out of them, where as opposed to male Marines, people are a little hesitant to kind of talk to us um, overseas. So there is value. They bring something to the table. Mm -hmm. um, so what we need to do is we need to indoctrinate the rest of the force to go ahead and say, hey, look, um, we have to accept these uh, female Marines. They have gone through the train that we've gone through and that we need to accept them as equal players in this. Right. So one of those things that people are having a hard time with is when you start establishing regulations with different standards. So mm. you think about PFT standards, CFT right. standards. That's why uh, I think the Marine Corps wants to move toward a gender-neutral uh, PFT, CFT standard, which I believe is a good thing because it shows you, hey, look, the person was able to pass through all these, uh, you know, requirements to be an infantry officer or requirements right, to be an I infantry. Mean, they're not why changing not? the standard, though, in IOC, though. It's you still have to meet all the standards, and the female officers have to meet the same standard, correct? Correct. Correct. There, there is no changing of standards. Female, uh, females still have to go through the same standards as males. And, uh, you know, for the females who graduate more power to you, that simply tells you, Hey, look, you were able to go ahead and, you know, go through with your male peers and, you know, do the same thing they've been able to do. You know, why not? You know, you've shown yourself physically and mentally capable of doing it. Why not welcome them to our ranks? 
I like it. I like it because recently we had uh, the first female Marine graduate from Force Recon. Um, that 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 was good to hear because I like I want to see us um, incorporate female service members into special operations because th- that uh, diversity is always a good thing uh, in my book. Because um, once people start getting secluded, it uh, it affects the bigger picture and it affects the fighting force. And with that though, that's a perfect segue to. Uh, my next question, which is about your background, being Asian American or Chinese. Can I say Chinese American or just American, period? Uh, Chinese American's fine. Yeah, okay, Chinese American, because I don't want to offend you, because I always say Nigerian American for me. Um, what has that experience been for you and going through the process of being a Marine? Being a Marine officer, that's rare, <laughs> and you're Asian. Have you experienced any discrimination? And if so, how did you overcome it? Well, um, you know, overtly, you know, I've uh, I've not. Um, I've been blessed to grow up in towns and environments where people are more accepting of other culture and races. Um, behind the scenes, I'm sure there, you know, there there has been. However, there's really nothing I can do about it besides uh, just being me. Mm. Um, so, uh, with that being said, I, I know. Hey, look, some of my friends in college have uh, affectionately called me a uh, Twinkie or a banana or wow. whiter than white um, because uh, you know I've integrated into the mainstream American culture. Um, um, you wow. know, they say I've lost some of my traditional Asian values. And uh, you think about it, you know, joining the military is not something Asians or Asian culture does, or, or at least not the Chinese cultural. Uh, they do. Really? Um, so like, in China. That's, that's not what I expected you to say, because uh, I felt like it's a huge thing in the Asian culture. I don't even know if there's an Asian culture. That, that may be overstating. Well, I guess I'm well, thinking of well, Japanese culture. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Let me narrow that down to you in terms of Chinese culture, because uh, okay. I can't say the same thing for Korean culture. I can't say the same thing for Japanese culture. Um, but in the Chinese culture, joining the military ranks below being a prisoner. Um, it signifies what? that. Yep. It signifies that you you somehow couldn't make a living. And uh, because you couldn't make a living, you had to resort to enlisting in the military. So that's what we essentially equated to. So that's why when... Chinese American Americans come over or Chinese people come over to America and become American uh, citizens. They don't see military service usually as a an option for them because it's so looked down upon. Really? That's the first time I ever heard that. Wow. Mm-hmm. So is this something that used to be the case or something that still exists? I would say really. um it probably still exists because most Chinese people coming over from China to America want to do one thing. They want to make a living. You know, they want to make a living. They want don't want to be bothered with the politics. They simply, you know, like uh, don't want to be persecuted for their beliefs or their outspokenness about the government. They want to come here, you know, uh, make a living, send their have a family, send their kids to school, get them educated, then have them, you know, repeat the same process all over again. So that's why Chinese Americans in politics, you don't really see that a lot because, you know, they're very private people. They like Mm -hmm. to, you know, do their thing. And as people say, they're the model model, uh, citizens of the United States. Right. Model because they come here, they work hard and they raise their family. They don't cause you any trouble. Is is that what you mean with the word model? So... (laughs) You know, so, uh, you know, that's kind of what they're saying in that aspect. Interesting. And it's so similar to the Nigerian uh, story, because that's what they say about Nigerians as well. Because I, I, I saw a study recently that followed um, Chinese and Nigerian immigrants. 
And it said uh, Nigerian immigrants were the most successful in the U.S., followed by Chinese immigrants. And both groups were model citizens. <laughs> so it's <laughs> interesting you used the, uh, those words. And Nigerians tend to be uh, private and just want to work hard and want to go to college, uh, become a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, and those things. And speaking of military, in my situation. You know, that, that sounds very similar to what Chinese people say, too, right? They say really? that, hey, look, we want you to be a doctor or lawyer or something where, you know, um, I guess engineer. So I guess the Nigerian Chinese culture do have the intersection of it. <laughs> right. Because like in my family, for instance. Right. So I joined the military. I'm the only one joined the military. And that wasn't received very well. I mean, I'm, I'm from a family of five men and the oldest is an economist. The second is a lawyer. The thir third is a computer scientist. The fourth is a metallurgist, uh, has a PhD in uh, mechanical engineering. So it's like, so I was supposed to be the doctor. <laughs> and <it's, laughs> I was told this beforehand. And that didn't actually work with me. Like, I, I thought about it for a second because my godfather is a cardiologist. Um, but I just didn't like that path. And I always wanted that service path, wanted to go EOD. And I was in the citizen and they said, oh, no. Wanted to go Ranger. Nope, you're not a citizen. So it's like all these stories. And I just didn't follow that mode of typical the Nigerian path. And now I'm, I'm here in the States. And the thing is, oh, I'm over-Americanized. To your other point of going to school and people saying, well, you've crossed over. And let me ask you this, though. Um, do you ever find yourself in the middle of two worlds? Because this happens to me where... I'm not American enough or I'm not Nigerian enough. I'm, I'm trying to find where I fit in sometimes. Does that ever happen to you or no? There, there's always going to be two worlds. Um, I find that that does happen. It depends on who I hang around with. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So in college, if I was hanging around with my normal classmates, uh, you know, people I grew up with, were, which, you know, I grew up in, in uh, Westfield, New Jersey, which was predominantly white. So in that environment, I really don't get anything about that. I simply, you know, I'm just one of the boys, so to speak, hanging out, uh, right. doing my thing. But once I hang around, like to say, when I went out to college, I had a bigger group of uh, Asian American friends. And right. it was interesting because that's where those terms come from. That's where I first heard the term Twinkie or first heard the term banana or, um, you know, an egg. Um, so, you know, for your listeners who don't know what that is, um, mm -hmm. you know, Twinkies and bananas, it's a slang for a, hey, look, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And a oh. egg is white on the outside, yellow on the inside. So, you know, we're using that, you know, racial slang of Asian people being yellow to go ahead and equate them to items and things. So, uh, you know, you'll hear certain Asian Americans call Asian Americans, hey, look, you're a Twinkie or hey, you're a banana. Um, so you'll hear that and yeah, you're, you're going to be a person of both cult of both worlds. Um, you know, and when those, when the world, those two worlds intersect, um, it gets interesting in terms of, you know, where you fall and where your identity is. Right. And, uh, you know, <laughs> wow. it, it got interesting when people go, well, are you Chinese or are you American? Which one are you? Uh -huh. And I'm like, well, if you look at, I'm in the military, what I do for a living and the choices I made, I've clearly integrated into American society because, you know, I believe that, you know, that's where I belong. You know, that's where I was raised and that's where I grew up. And this is, you know, I'm a product of my, my, my environment. So here I am. That's awesome. So. <laughs> I like it, Ra. And that's just you right there. Like you, you're calm and you just respond. And that's one thing I learned from you and just being intentional with my response and not being very aggressive, just calming down. 
So I picked that up from you and I, I don't know where you get that from and how you, where you get your drive from, you know, and, and before I, I ask you that question though, everything you just talked about, um, reminds me of something my wife taught me is, uh, intersectionality. And that's where all your different personalities intersect and different worlds you're in. So for instance, with me, I have that same issue where I have to deal with which, which group I fit in. Like for instance, Am I American all the way or am I Nigerian? Depending on who I hang out with. And there's a third factor when I hang out with African-Americans. So black Americans, it's like I'm the African guy. I'm not the black guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, but when I'm hanging out with white folks, I'm the black guy. I'm the African-American. But when I'm hanging out with Nigerians, I'm the American because I'm not Nigerian enough. I left when I, I left Nigeria when I was 18. So as a result, I'm like in this. I'm in this place of uncertainty of who I really am. So I'm constantly trying to uh, figure that out. So how I combat that is just to focus on who has done something for me and have my loyalty or express my loyalty to that entity, which is in this case, America gave me an education, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree um, provided for me and my family. And it's only right I show that loyalty and uh, serve the country that's provided for me. So that, that's how I kind of get through that dichotomy, I guess. But it's interesting that you have something similar. But um, I digress. Let me go to the next. <laughs> go ahead, sir. You know, actually, yeah, I just want to add, this is going to be a little bit controversial on, uh, on both of our ends. Uh, but you might as well unpack it and uh, talk about it. So um, I've, I've always been asked, hey, look, you're, you're Chinese, Chinese-American. Why don't you marry Chinese? What's wrong with you? Yeah, oh, yeah you're going, do you want to go there? Oh, God. <laughs> I, I can't believe you just did that. Oh, oh man. That is a rough one. That is uh, a rough one. Well, I'll go there. And uh, okay. someone shared an interesting perspective with me. And he said, hey, look, he goes, you came over to China when you were five years old. He goes, you came over your sister uh, in an Asian family and you settled in, in a location where there were other Asian people. And right. Like, yeah, true. He's like, well, hey, listen, he goes, when you grew up, every female, every Asian female you ever saw was either your mother, your aunt, your sister, or somebody in that type of relationship with you where you felt the need to take care of them because you know mm -hmm. as a male you felt the need to take care of them he goes so however when it came to uh getting married and dating and really dating people he goes you think that has an influence in terms of who you pick to date and i thought to myself that's quite interesting because hmm. if every asian female i see i have a attachment to it in terms of that hey that's my sister or something like that then wouldn't that drive who you're going to end up dating Wow, <laughs> that's that's interesting. Cause, cause, cause. Let me let me respond to that though. Cause, like, cause on my side, it's it's more of a. Cause I came to the states when I was uh, eighteen. Uh, went through high school, obviously in Nigeria, and our dichotomy is a little bit different in terms of it's tribalism, right? So if you, I'm Igbo, that's my tribe. So if you marry outside of the tribe, it's frowned upon, and. I have a brother that did that and it was a whole big issue. And even within my tribe, depending on where you're marrying from, that's an issue as well. So then me being the last born came to the US, the only one to come to the US. Well, I have another brother that came, but I came earlier and ended up marrying an American, you know, 
that was not that did not go over well at all at all then ended up getting a divorce and all i heard was well we told you you're the only one in the whole family has ever gotten a divorce and that's because of the american culture so they try to give me an out on how it was somebody else's fault that that happened but over time and this is something i love about america america teaches you not to blame others and personal accountability you know on what could i have done to be better and this is something i learned from my wife now that i remarried and she's not nigerian either <laughs> so and, and so that's something I've, I've dealt with constantly and between my two marriages um I was being pushed to marry a Nigerian to the point where I would get phone calls from women I never met and say, oh, I could cook. I could do this. And that just threw me off guard, you know, like so this cultural dynamic that doesn't happen in America. And um, and that just scared me, you know, and then I met my wife now and she's independent and she teaches me so much. And it's kind of like a, a team, if that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. And she leads sometimes and she lets me lead the household ahead of the household. But it's not that I'm telling her what to do. We're a team. And, and to, to your point about that, and thank you for, thank you for bringing this up and unpacking it. It's just, it's interesting for immigrants. I, I believe in the States and just the different dynamics that we have to constantly deal with. It's not something that ever goes away. I don't think. And down to my name. Right. And, even my kids, my kids' names. So my kid, even though he was born and raised here, my son and my daughters, um, their names are different, you know? So they're going to ask them that those questions in the future and they will have to answer those questions. So it's, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily, uh, I don't know how I feel about putting that burden on my kids. I don't know if I was supposed to just give them perfect American names, you know, but it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a challenging, uh, story or subject that I don't know if we can really unpack right now, sir. What do you think? <laughs> hey, that's up to you. I mean, uh, but bear in mind that you're, you know, there's some things and aspects and characteristics where your kids are, you know, are going to have to deal with, you know, just because of, you know, um, you know, of, who, you know, who they're born to. And uh, what characteristics they have and they inherited. And, uh, you know, it's going to make them stronger because of that. Mm, I like it. Oh, oh, he's positive. You see that? That's, that's my guy. I love it. Um, so let me ask you this then, sir. Um, where do you get your drive from? Well, there's a couple areas I get my drive from. Uh, first is family. So family, being, uh, being disappointment, and then the permanent fear of failure. Uh, so let me go ahead and go through one by one. Wow. Uh, so my family has been with me through thick and thin. Uh, since the birth of my son, I found that they need to keep working hard so you can have an upbringing that uh, you know I really never had. Um, second one, being in disappointment. Um, I have a lot of mentors, students, Marines, even junior Marines that I've led uh, that put a lot of faith in me, my abilities, and knowing my character. Uh, there's a unspoken uh, expectation. They look, you know, how can I help them uh, make their lives better or richer? And I really hate to let those, uh, you know, people down. And the other one I have is uh, permanent or fear of permanent failure. 
And uh, I'm, I'm not talking about the idea that, you know, failure is a prerequisite for success. But, you know, uh, early in my teen years, I have a lot of naysayers that said things like, hey, look, you're not strong enough to graduate boot camp and be a Marine. Uh, you know, you're not fast enough. You're not strong enough. Um, so, mm. you know, I like to believe that I prove them all wrong by not only being a Marine, but having to go through um, OCS, TBS, IOC and multiple combat deployments. So I like to use my career as an example of, hey, what someone can achieve. Um, so uh, that, hey, someone else's biased perception of me is not my reality. Mm, I like it. Someone's biased perception of you is not your reality. I may have to steal that one, sir. But, uh, <laughs> By all so means. That's, that's pretty good. But uh, So I mentioned in the intro about your combat deployment to Sangin in Afghanistan. Um, I had... Gunnery Sergeant Cartier on one of my earlier uh, podcasts, and we talked about the combat tour. What was your experience of that uh, tour? Um, so I was with uh, 325 when we uh, deployed over deployed overseas to uh, you know, to Afghanistan. So um, 325 has a little bit of a history. Um, you know, it was uh, the the battalion was hit pretty hard in 2005. So 2009, 2010 was our uh, return, uh, you know, to combat deployments. So, um, you know, because of our past history and uh, everyone want us to kind of see us succeed, uh, they split us up. They're like, hey, look, we're, we're only going to have 325 alone, but we want to split you guys up. So instead of staying in one area, I found myself that I had three different uh, experiences. Uh, the first experience, I uh, was at, uh, you know, a Delrom 2, uh, where we provided, um, you know, uh, we would provide security. Uh, we did the ECP and we did the border security and we, uh, you know, we handle the uh, interactions of, of, you know, of people there. Uh, so that's my first one. So during that time was when three, five, really, uh, you know, three, five, one another battalions uh, in the country uh, in Sangin uh, at the time uh, is when they took a lot of casualties, you know, mm. a couple of their short couple officers. Uh, they took a lot of casualties from IEDs. So uh, it was at the time where the battalion commander, uh, you know, went to the, uh, you know, went to the task force and was like, hey, look. I need more Marines. I need more help to fight, you know, continue fighting. So uh, as a result, my company, Kilo Company 325, uh, we got detached from Delaram 2 and we got sent forward to help out 35 and staying in Afghanistan. Um, so uh, we got split, you know, among uh, five increment and PB fires. Uh, patrol based fires was where I first met then Stassar and Cartier. Um, so wow. PB fires was a platoon uh, held platoon held base where you know the entire platoon took care of, you know took care of the uh, defenses and they basically ran patrols uh, on a day in and day out basis uh, right. so these marines would uh find ieds uh sometimes get you know get hit by ieds come back and next morning go out the door again uh you know for those presence patrols so um, you know i spent about maybe two to three months doing that um, so from were, there, were, were you, I, were you, were you enlisted or an officer at that point? I, I was an officer at that point. Um, okay. so my, you know, my platoon, our job was to go ahead and at PB fires, uh, provide, you know, uh, provide, uh, Gunny Cartier's uh, platoon, some operational relief. The idea is that, Hey, look, we'll take over manning your guard towers. We'll take over handling the security aspects of this base. You guys can arrest, refit. And this way, when you guys punch out, uh, you know, to go on your patrols, and at least you'll be well rested and it'll give you a break as opposed to come back from patrol, be on guard duty, get some sleep, back out on patrol. So we gave him right. that operational. How, how, how is that? Though? Like, I that. mean, like I'm trying to try to figure that out. So 
Well, you did you ever find yourself in a tick um, situation? Like, what was that experience? Your first. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> well, troops in contact, uh, we oh, I'm would sorry, troops in contact, right? Yeah, yeah, troops in contact, we would. Um, so, you know, the you know th- this <laughs> PB fires was um, so PB fires, and I think at PB or um, uh, five increment, you can literally see each other. You can see each other, and we had what's called a picket line. A picket line was, um, you know, was uh, was vehicles parked every hundred yards uh, from one, you know, between PV fires and our location because uh, the IED place enough that we had to put a picket line out there. That line was our main line of egress. That you know, those Marines on the picket line ensure that no one IED'd the road. Uh, you know, from increment to us, and that you know that we were able to go traverse that road uh, safely. Uh, you know, so we had a picket line out, a picket line. Uh, we had, uh, you know, uh, sent out presence patrols. So occasionally, um, I think it was sometime during Thanksgiving. It was during Thanksgiving where um, Gunny Cartier's uh, platoon it was pulled back to go, uh, you know, kind of rest and refit. And we were out there alone, unafraid by ourselves. And during this time, the Taliban decided, hey, look, we want, we, we, let's do a ceasefire. Let's do a, you know, let's do a ceasefire because, uh, you know, the holidays and whatever case it is. Right. Um, so, you know, on faith, we said, hey, look, we'll honor your ceasefire for the next two weeks, whatever case it is. Um, so the Taliban, instead of using the ceasefire to go ahead and, you know, you know, promote peace, they use that time to, you know, reinforce and, uh, you know, reinforce their positions and restock their ammunition. Because <laughs> after that ceasefire was over, um, you know, we started getting it, you know, the base itself started getting attacked. And when we got attacked, um, we got like RPGs, which they never used RPGs in that zone before. All of a sudden, the right. RPGs are impacting our, you know, our patrol base. So uh, we would have contact in that regards where, you know, they're trying to take us out and we're basically firing back. Um, how, so, how did that feel, though? Like, how did that feel being in combat? Being in combat. Like somebody's is, trying to kill you, actively trying to kill you. How, being, how did that feel? Being in combat is the most chaotic uh, thing you can ever be in, most disorienting, because you never you're on edge already. Something kicks off the attack, and y- you know you have to respond back. So the question is, how do you respond back? Hey, you know, uh, you know. So you do a lot of rehearsals before you get out into the field or be- wherever you go. You know, during your mm-hmm. deployment workups, you do a lot of workups. Say, hey, look, we get ambushed here. This is what you're going to do. You get ambushed here. This is what you're going to do. And the only thing you really do is rely rely on that train to get you get you to rely on that train. The initial moment the ambush or something kicks off, you rely on that train to keep you safe. You hit the deck. You try to return fire. From there, you have to go ahead and say, Hey, look, how do I? What happened? Where did the attack come from? How can we, you know, uh, we can fire back? How can we get ourselves out of this situation? So that's right. when you go ahead and look at all the assets and all the resources you have of fighting back. And sometimes you're like, well, we got air. Do you really have air? Do you have a way to communicate with them? If you don't, you don't really have air. So what other assets do you have that you can use? And so it's a chaotic situation. And, you know, it's all when all your your shortcomings become apparent. You're like, man, I should have PT'd harder because I wouldn't be this out of breath. Or, you know, I wish I did more of this because now I can, you know, run all day, you know, have more endurance. You know, those doubts always come to your mind. That's 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 serious stuff right there. Gosh. So like with that, though, let me ask you this. What's the most uncomfortable thing you've ever done and how did you overcome it? Most uncomfortable thing I've done and, 
you know, and I'm going to caveat with this phrase. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, it's easier to be an XO than a CO. Um, you know, and, and really, reason why. you think so? <laughs> yeah, the reason wow. why I say it's easier to be an XO than a CO is because the XO is not really responsible. He does work he's tasked for, but he's ultimately not responsible because right. the CO is responsible for everything that does and doesn't happen. And, uh, you know, things in the, like in the military, I find that you move up the ranks, you become an XO, you become a CO and, you know, and, and it's not, I would say, yeah, you, you might be, as an XO become the CO, you might have the same job. You might still be doing the same things day in, day out, but that responsibility piece in there is what's different. Um, so, you know, example I'm going to throw out there, this is going to sound very corny, uh, to you is, um, NJP Marines, you know, uh -huh. um, you know, I know that, you know, we, we joke about, Hey, commanders and first arms like callously throw NJPs like it's candy, you know, uh, Hey, NJP you know, stands for non judicial punishment, by the way. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, on a company commander level, I can't exactly do a reduction in rank. However, I can, you know, take some money from you, uh, you know, restriction. I can also do that. Uh, so the higher up level of NJP authority you have, the more you can do. Like the battalion commander can take rank from you besides, you know, uh, take more money from you and restrict you more. Uh, the right. regular commander can do a lot more. So as you go up the ranks, those, those NJP powers get uh, you know, larger and larger. So. You know, NJP power is what I call it's a very dreadful power bestowed on commanders and that you really don't want to use it because it has a direct impact on a Marine's livelihood and their careers. And their dependence, too. Correct. Correct. So, uh, you know, and, and you know, so um, as a company commander, I had one situation where, you know, um, we're coming in for a drill weekend one weekend. Um, so we're going to the field on Saturday morning for the entire weekend where we have our weapons and we have our serialized gear drawn. Um, so, you know, we go to the field on Saturday morning and on Sunday morning, you know, I see all my Marines online um, combing the training site we're at. You know, and uh, I'm like, why are you combing the training site? You know, we're not police calling the area. Right. And, uh, you know, that's when I hear, hey, look, hey, sir, we're missing at PEC 15. Oh, and, no. Uh, I'm looking at it and I'm going, what do you mean we're missing at PEC 15? How did this happen? So uh, a PEC 15 is a, is a military version of a laser pointer. It attaches to the uh, Picatinny rails at the end of your rifle. Uh, this way you paint the tar, you know, paint a laser out on you know, your target and you can uh, right. shoot at it. Right. So, you know, I... I was like, okay, well, we're missing a PEC-15. Okay, well, you know, what happened? You know, uh, you know what happened, you know, in, in terms of, you know, resulting in this PEC-15 being missing? So the Marine that was missing it uh, claimed that he physically had it getting off the bus on a Saturday night. You know, because once we got off the bus, uh, you know, uh, you know, all the platoon clan, all the platoon sergeants and the uh, company gunny did a gear check, serialized gear check. Hey, everyone got the gear. Everyone has a rifle. Everyone's got their Marines. Everyone's got their rifles and their serialized gear and everyone's got their packs. All right, we're good. Send the buses away. So the Marine, you know, said, hey, look, he had his PEC-15 getting off the bus. Okay. Uh -huh. So later that evening, he tells his fire team leader that he's missing his PEC-15. So his, his fire team leader tells him, hey, look, we'll, we'll look for it now discreetly. And then we'll, we'll look for it again in the morning when there's daylight. We'll, we'll probably find it. So uh, right. later in the evening before, you know, Marine secured, you know, to, to sleep, um, you know, he passes a report up to the company gunny that, hey, look, all serialized gear is accounted for. And, uh, hey, we're up. All serialized gear accounted for. We're up. Oh, we're secure no. in the evening. Wait, 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 wait. So, they, passed, they passed that information knowing that something was missing? 
Correct. They pass that information oh, to the company no. going, hey, hey, don't tell the company going, don't be alarmed. We're up. All right, we'll find it in the morning. So, you know, that's Saturday night. Sunday morning, you know, um, you know, I'm seeing my Marines online. Police call or looking for it. That's when, uh, you know, hey, we're halting all the training. Uh, we're tearing apart the training site to look for these PEC 15s. Like, you know, like even, you know, they say, hey, look at unexpected places. We looked on top of buildings, overhangs. Someone stirred the porta potty with a stick, maybe hoping to find something there. Uh, Marines were literally combing the woods to find a PEC 15. So it wasn't until about three to four hours later, the same buses that came to dr- that dropped us off on Friday, on uh, Monday, um, say on Saturday morning, were uh-huh. the same buses that were coming to pick us up. Uh, we got lucky because, uh, you know, one of the Marines went on board the buses and to look through it real quick, and he found a PEC 15, you know, wedged between two seats. Wow. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, you're like, hey, look. Um, you know, I know people would be like, hey, look, no harm, no foul. You wasted a few hours looking for something. You know, uh, serialized gear was lost. Serialized gear was recovered. Um, you know, like, like is a NJP really, you know, applicable in this case? And oh, yes. uh, I'm like, well, oh, hey, yes. look, we're, we're having two NJPs. We're having one NJP for that one Marine for loss of accountability of serialized gear. As the Marine said, and he swore up and down, he had that piece of gear getting off the bus. And the second Marine, his fire team leader, who knowingly filed a false report to the company Gunny, which indirectly went to me, saying that, hey, all his section's gear was accounted for. So is there really no harm, no foul? No, because no. what's most unforgivable was lack of accountability and false reporting. Right. So, you know, and the question becomes, hey, look, if I don't punish these Marines for you know, discrepancies of this kind, you know, what kind of message about good order and discipline am I sending to the rest of my Exactly. Company? It's an integrity um, violation right there. Right. So I had to make sure that the message was understood loud and clear that these mess, that these mistakes won't be tolerated. It might exactly. be something small today, you know, and you know, it might be something small today, but think about it and start losing a rifle, a machine gun, you know, where do you draw the line? You know, yeah. as a commander, small things matter, right? <laughs> right, right. As a commander, you have to draw that line and you have to hold that line. And, hold you know, and you have to, you know, you have to go ahead and use your NJP authority and go, hey, look, you know, this happened. And you got to go ahead and hold that line. If you don't, Marines are going to start walking all over you. And next thing you know, they're losing big items. I like it. That's awesome, sir. Awesome stuff. So that's a good segue to my next question, though. So what's the. What are the best attributes of a good leader? Decisiveness. Making a decision in a timely manner that gives your subordinates a time to prepare themselves for whatever you're doing. Um, integrity. Doing the right thing regardless of who's watching. Loyalty. Not only up the chain of command, but especially down the chain of command. And willing mm. to go to bat for your Marines because you believe that they deserve recognition or they deserve you know, t- you know, their, their concerns to be heard. Um, unselfishness, you know, like I said, it's no longer about you, but about your Marines, uh, courage, especially moral courage to be able to stand up for your Marines. And the last part I kind of lumped together is, I, I kind of call it truly giving a damn about your Marines and their success. Uh, I don't mean, Hey, look, we're going to handhold someone, but relative, rather setting realistic high expectations. And you're going to push coach and mentor them to achieve those things, uh, that they themselves maybe think that wasn't possible. Hmm. Wow. I didn't expect you to go that deep. That's 
good stuff. That's good stuff, sir. I'll be have to write that list down later. I'll have to listen to this several times and get that list. So it's not just up uh, the chain, but down the chain and just selflessness, right? Because you, mm-hmm. you told me something about gets to a point where you transition from thinking about yourself, start thinking about the organization and others. And that's something that's always resonated with me. And um, with that, though, I, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on mentorship? Um, well, mentorship is a absolute must, you know, because no one really comes in the military knowing everything. You know, there's institutional knowledge that's not taught or written in the books. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be sitting where I am today without mentorships from my previous leaders and uh, senior enlisted Marines. So, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and, you know, I point out the fact that, hey, look, I'm sure we've all seen that junior Marine or sailor. When I use Marine or sailor, you know, interchangeable. Uh, so when you see that junior Marine getting screamed at with a knife mm-hmm. hand by NCO or staff NCO, I'm sure we all stood by and uh, watched in guilty pleasure, you know, but, uh, you know, something like that, it, it's it's really a leadership style that I don't really subscribe to, you know, because to me, that's a last resort, you know, when dealing with your knuckleheads, um, because you kind of want peer pressure and public pressure. When you do that to them, you're trying to get peer pressure and public pressure to turn them around from their bad behavior. So with mentorship, you hope it never gets to that level. You know, the, you know, the, you know, a mentor, you know, uh, does an important thing where I like to say the mentor offers a, a bigger view of the picture or why something's being done. And uh, mm. if you understand the why and the importance of why, it's easier to suck it up and do it as opposed to, you know what, they just don't like me and I got to unpack this truck. But that's about, you're talking about the millennials right there because I'm a millennial. And the issue with millennials, I guess, is that we always ask for the why so we could figure out the how. And people, the older generation always say, just uh, suck it up and just do what you're told. Well, you know, I explain the why you align their efforts with your efforts. And, uh, mm. you know, and, you know, and, you know, let, let me throw, you know, uh, you know, let me throw boot camp out there for you. So in Marine boot camp, you know, it's most famous for two things, the yellow footprints and the introduction to your drill instructors. You know, and you'll notice a palpable panic that's about to ensure, you know, when that sudden chaos or that moment where, you know, you know, all hell's going to break loose. You know, it's right. disorienting, it's chaotic, it's panic inducing. Um, but if you notice on the inside that if you slow down the extra mental simulation, stimulus, you know, build yourself a mental shell to kind of give yourself a moment to think. You can process what you're being told and you can execute now, while this is going through your mind, you're probably automatically getting down on the ground for a push-up or a burpee or, you know, or jumping jacks or whatever they're saying that you need to do. If you right. think about that, you know, in, in a combat situation, you know, you're on a patrol and suddenly you get ambushed. You know, if your training was done right, you would have automatically hit the deck, mentally processed that you were getting shot at from somewhere, and you're getting ready to return fire. So, you know, there there is a method to the madness of, you know, having those moments, because if you knew the why and that your life may one day depend on the ability to make decisions calmly under calmly under fire, under extreme stress, you probably look forward to the opportunity to build your mental toughness. You know, the, uh, the thing is that, mm. you know, that experience is a once in a lifetime experience. It's not a, as effective the second time around. Right. Right. Wow. <laughs> Good stuff, sir. So let me ask you this then. What are the best attributes of a uh, the worst leader you've ever had? 
Um, the attributes of a worst leader I ever had. So the best at the best attributes of your your worst leader. Uh, best attributes of my worst leader. Okay, so I think we kind of need to, you know, uh, draw a distinction, uh, be, you know, between uh, what I call my worst leaders. So um, with that being said, you know, you know, there are leaders that at the time I thought were truly bad versus someone's truly bad, selfish. So. You know, once again, you know, hey, once I understood the why, you know, uh, these bad leaders, you know, weren't that bad, you know, and there were lessons to be learned. And, you know, and I find that I was uh, forced to grow up a little bit more, a little bit faster under bad leadership. So there's two stories I kind of want to share, uh, you know, when I was a headquarters and service company commander as a captain, um, you know, that, you know, I, I looked at a leader and I said, man, you're a jerk or you, you're really bad. You know, you're a bad leader. Mm. You know, so, you know, the question is, I didn't understand the why. So, you know, the why is definitely important. So um, I had a warrant officer who failed a PFT in June. So, you know, knowing oh, okay. because it's a warrant officer, he failed a PFT, it automatically triggers a adverse fit rep. So right. two months down the road, we start CFTs, uh, combat fitness uh, you know, tests. So the day we're running them, the uh, operations officer comes to me and says, hey, look, you're going to make this officer take the CFT this month. And he goes, and if he doesn't listen to you, you tell me and I'll make him take it. So, you know, I kind of stood back a little bit and I looked at the operation officer. I'm like, man, you're a blue Falcon. Like, hey, look, right. we're running the CFT one more time next month. Why don't you give this guy right. another month to get into shape and help him out here? You know, like, you know, don't don't screw him over. You know, so right. that, that was kind of what was going on in my mind, you know, so because the, the operation, okay, you, you didn't say that you were just thinking, I was yeah. thinking about back of mind. I'm like, yeah, you're a jerk. So the oh, operations right, right. officer looked at and you know, saw my moment of hesitation. And and then, you know, he, he pulled me and goes, hey, let me explain real quick. He goes, he goes, the warrant officer's fit rep is due the, fo is the following month. He goes, if he fails the CFT this month, you know, he'll get one adverse fit rep for both failing both the PFT and the CFT. He goes, he can recover oh. from that. He goes, if we push a CFT to the next month and he fails it, he'll get two consecutive adverse fit reps and not have a chance of recovering from that. That's a career killer. Oh. So it was that moment when I realized that, hey, look, he wasn't being a jerk. He was trying to take right. care of his Marines. And to take care of his Marines might cause an instant pain now, but he was going to do it. So he was thinking big picture and you weren't there yet. You were just seeing correct. the noun and what was going on. Wow. Correct. So with that being said, you know, was he truly a bad leader? Not really. He nope. was taking care of his Marines on the bigger picture level. I can't fault him for that. You know? So um, the other example I have, you know, is um, I remember we were submitting a uh, PME, professional military education um, school seat package for one of my Marines. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, looking at his stats, his PFT score wasn't where it should have been. You know, he'd be past the PFT, but, you know, third class. So uh, the deputy uh, instructor, uh, you know, you know, deputy instructor, uh, inspector instructor, who was a major at the time, you know, he kicked back my package and said, hey, look, we're not sending that guy there. No, here's your package back. So I looked at the package and I was pretty mad. Like I knew this Marine, I knew he was good to go. And, you know, in my mind, I was calling him all sorts of nasty names and, you know, you know, you know, he, that he's a bad leader and, you know, everything in my mind. So, you know, 
I didn't exactly call him bad things, but you know, he, you know, he, he looked right. at me and he he saw the hesitation once again, in my, you know, in my face, and he he kind of explained to me. He said, "Hey, look," he goes, he goes, "Hey, look, if we send this marine who barely met the physical requirements to PME, and he fails the incoming PFT, he goes, it's a waste of you and his money of sending him there. It's a waste of the Marine Corps' money, and we could have potentially denied a more qualified marine from getting his PME." Because we sent someone, because we were selfish and we sent someone unqualified. So, wow. you know, at, at the time, you think about it, you know, as a company commander, it was fighting for our Marines, tooth and nails, I believe was the right thing to do. And here he is right. on, on the bigger picture going, hey, li- hey, wait a second. You know, hey, Howard Charger, re- relax a little bit. This is the reason why I'm doing it. And, and, and you know, and, uh, you know, and I'm realizing that, you know, the more as I stay in this organization, the more I pick up rank, uh, the more of these lessons I see, the more and more it makes mm-hmm. sense, you know, and, and it wasn't, you know, maybe at the time I said, you know, maybe I was too dense as a captain to see that, you know, um, right. you know, once you pick up, you know, let's say you pick up major or you pick up 04, you see things differently because right. you're putting a billet of increased responsibility, you know, your horizons expand a little bit and you're no longer just worried about that 180 Marines you have from a company. But you're worried about taking care of the battalion, 800 Marines now. Now you have a bigger pool right. to pick from. You know, what are your recommendations to the CO? Because there's an allocation of finite resources. You know, you're not comparing the best staff and CO in your company, but across the entire battalion. Wow. So that's all perspective. Good stuff. But like, I want to I know, how, as a leader, how were you able to supervise someone like me? When I was your assistant operations officer, how, do you, how did you turn me into the weapon to just go out and seek and do great things. Cause like <laughs> I've never had a supervisor like you, but h- how did you do it? Well, uh, so we define leadership as the ability to influence others for the purpose of achieving a common goal. So having type A personalities mm. such as yourself on the team is not a bad thing because they're already self-motivated and they want to do well. So you need to go ahead and direct your energy, passion, and enthusiasm to align with your goals uh, whatever your mission is. So, um, you know, quite often for these Marines and sailors, you know, I, I delegate a task. I let them know what the commander's intent is. You know, if there's a left and right lateral limit, what they are and the end state, Right. you know, and after that, I let them run with the task because, um, you know, once I tell you what needs to be done, I'll never tell you how it needs to be done because now that enables you to figure out Mm. how to get from A to B and it allows you to take ownership right. of that process because it's not my process anymore. <laughs> it's stuff. your process. You threw some inputs in there. Now it becomes yours. You know, so that that's awesome, sir. That, that I'm sorry to cut no. you off, but why I'm laughing is because all the things you just said, right, are the things that I'm, I'm currently filling an 04 billet, as you, as you know, and um, I have more responsibility and I'm, I'm supervising people and. I'm doing the same thing that you did with me in terms of not trying to show the how. I'm just showing the why and what the commander's intent is and clearly and concisely giving guidance, right? And just letting people do what they do and just work. And I'm seeing it, like, I'm seeing a perspective I've never seen before and how people are, like, passionate and bringing stuff back to me that I didn't even think could have come out of that process, so if I was the one that just told them the how, that probably wouldn't have been that good. <laughs> so it's like, I sort of thank you for teaching me that part because <laughs> I, I didn't know that till you supervised me because prior to that, I don't know if it's a Navy versus a Marine thing, 
Uh, but it was more of micromanaging. It was like, this is how I want you to do it. Then when I was actually your assistant, you had me, you just told me what you needed me to do. And which included supervising Marines. And you gave me, uh, I'll give you advice on how you should do this, but figure out how you want to get it done. You know, so that's amazing. Sir. Well, you know, you know, and that's good. And stuff. thing, you know, with, you know, with you know, a lot of type eight, you know, personalities you find is that, hey, look, once you give someone a task, you might have to make some rudder steers, you know, and, uh, you know, right. and if they're not doing right. the job they want, you know, I do what's called a self-assessment real quick. I tell them, hey, look, mm. did I tell them what I want? You know, did I effectively communicate it? You know, if I effectively communicated what I wanted, you know, what was the issue? Why is this task not being done? Now, when you think of other things, you're like, hey, look, you know, does this Marine have the rank and the delegate authority to carry out this task? If not, how do I fix it? You know, how do I coach and mentor this Marine to get the job done rather than finding somebody else to take over? Because ultimately, I want to do is I want to set the conditions for this Marine to succeed, you know, because little successes mm. are confidence builders, you know, and, and you want to foster an environment where a Marine is not afraid to fail because failure is the prerequisite for success. And I find with mm. type A personalities, you know, the worst ass chewing you can give a type A personality is not an ass chewing, but four words. I'm disappointed in you. So mm. those wow. words are pretty impactful, you know, because you know that whatever is said from ass chewing is not going to compare to what that person is already doing to themselves after those four words. Right. <laughs> this is so funny because like it's like you're unpacking my personality right now because like i'm harder on myself than any other person can be you know it's like when i go out and run and people say oh let's go on a run i'm probably gonna run past what you expect me to do you know because i just expect a lot more myself and i want to get that job done but it's constantly taking that ownership and trying to get better each and every day and the thing that i, I did learn a lot uh from you was no one is perfect at anything. You're going to make mistakes, but it's how you respond to those mistakes that that counts, mm -hmm. you know. And and, and that, that that really changed me in my whole thinking and my whole paradigm and trying to help others as I supervise other people um, to help them see the big picture and focus on like daily victories and things those small so, things, those small so, wins. So it's you funny know? that you mentioned, uh, you know, being that you're in the position where you're at, you know, you're gonna have to, you know, formally recognize, you know, sailors or Marines who are doing a great job, you know? So right. when we talk about seeing the big picture. So, um, so this, uh, so with my old unit, uh, so we talk about seeing the big picture even when the Marine themselves can't see the big picture, you know, or, they, or they're not experienced enough to see that big picture. So I remember uh, during my last annual uh, training exercise, you know, with my last unit um, where I was the operations officer. So um, I told a, um, my company Gunny, you know, or he's no longer my company Gunny, the H&S company Gunny, who was a SASR at the time. Right. I'm like, hey, I'm going to write you up for a NAM, you know, a Navy, uh, Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal, because I'm like, hey, you did a great job during this entire exercise. I know during the middle of the exercise, you were, you were a company gunny. Then I pulled you out as a company gunny because I needed you to be the scout sniper platoon commander, you know, uh, because you're the senior scout sniper I have on deck. And I need you to go ahead and take charge of their training because one of, you know, one of your teams is going to be deploying to Afghanistan with the company they're supporting. So, uh, right. and I'm like, hey, you know, you did a great job on that too. I'm like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write you up a NAM for that. So when I told him that, he looked at me and he said, sir, I already have a NAM. I don't want another one. What? So I looked at him and yeah, he said, Hey, look, I already right. have one. Don't waste your time. And I looked at him going, 
Well, you're getting another NAMP because, uh, you know, you're getting another NAMP, even if it means more paperwork for me, because you right. deserve it. Mm. And that this has a bigger impact than you really see or that you really mm. think uh, about. Because uh, if you think about it, you know, I know that, uh, you know, um, getting him awarded a NAM would make his current fit rep a commendatory material. You know, he'll stand out among his peers. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and you have to think about this. If all his peers have two NAMs and he's your top performer, why does he only have one NAM? Mm. You know, are you sending the unintentional message to the promotion board that this Marine isn't as good as you wrote him to be? You know, if you're good enough to write him a good fit rep, why isn't he getting the recognition he deserves? Right. You know, because you think of the bigger picture, that NAM might be a tiebreaker between two great packages. You know? Yeah, but that's uh, where the politics comes in, sir. And you know how (laughs) we're not going to unpack that here and the awards and how that goes, you know. That's a whole different story. No, 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 we're we're not going to. But, uh, you know, so for that situation, you know, I knew that we were going to send that staff sergeant up to a meritorious gunny gunny board. Ah. Uh, You know, I knew we were going to send him up to that board. So there's actually a happy ending in this story because, uh, you know, I checked their recent uh, Marine Corps admin messages and uh, that staff sergeant was uh, recently selected for meritorious gunnery sergeant. Rah. And uh, he'll be pinned on this April. I so like it. Ooh, rah. That's awesome It's one stuff. of those things where it's small victories where you're like, man, I'm putting all this effort in this package and something better, good, better happen at, come out of it. And, you know, you see these things slowly come around, uh, you know, as you set them up for it. That's awesome, sir. I love that. So let me ask you this then. I know we've been going for a while. We're almost done. Just have a couple more questions. Sure. Um, you're a strong family, man. How do you manage uh, military life, family life, and being a teacher, a math teacher to high school students? How does that work? Well, uh, I'm going to tell you, it's one big juggling act. You know, uh, there are times you have to focus on one ball at a time at the detriment of the other two. Um, you know, so, you know, things like I try to prioritize my time. So with, during mm. teaching and teaching hours, I try to get all my lesson plans, preparations and grading done in school. You know, the time after school on the weekends are dedicated to, you know, your daily PT, family time. Right. Um, so and I try to layer in at least 20 to 60 minutes of military work each day and, uh, you know, take some weekends as well. So, you know, that, you know, with that being said, time ebbs and flows on a weekly, on a yearly basis. Right. So in the time when summer comes, I'm not teaching. I try to take advantage of the other two. Um, so, you know, sometimes you sacrifice, you know, more time for the military uh, and you have to make up, make it up on the other end, too. So, you know, and with everything going on, I think, you know, uh, you know, everything going on with my life, even going with your life, I think the one of the most, uh, you know, precious thing you give someone is mm-hmm. your undivided attention and time. Mm. Undivided attention and time. Check. I like it. So let me ask you this then with all the issues going on in our country right now, and I feel like it's slowly turning into a rebellious, selfish and conspiracy driven narrative. Um, everybody thinks coronavirus was created by the government and um, we try to kill Chinese people. And now it's spreading all over the world. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think about this? Instead of people sacrificing sacrificing right now for the greater good, what do you think about all this selfishness in America and how do we move forward from it? Well, you know, that's a uh, pretty loaded question. So kind of reminds me of a quote I heard, uh, which kind of goes like this. Uh, 
grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, mm. the courage to change things I can, can. and yeah. the wisdom to know the difference, difference. between the two. Rah. So, you know, there are a lot of issues that are beyond our, 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 our influence, you know, and uh, there's things that, there are things that we can do. And you think about it, we start at home with our children, you know, uh, teach them values, teach them acceptable social norms, how to quickly think for themselves, Check. set the example and call out inappropriate behavior, you know, uh, help and watch out for each other. You know, ask yourself things like, hey, what I've done, what have I done today to make someone's life easier? Mm. You know, what can I do to help and encourage those around me? You know, why these gestures might seem small, but it can make a world of difference in, you know, someone's life. Mm. Let me ask you uh, a follow up question to that, though. mm -hmm. You just, I just thought of something. So, so how does that compare to holding the line? Let's say if, if you're in a room and a group of people that are not in that room are being, disrespected or belittled or marginalized do you step up and protect the person that can't protect themselves or do you just let that fly and just act like you didn't hear it um i would say you're going to have to step up and uh defend the person who can't you know defend themselves because you know uh we, we talk about leadership all the time and when we talk about leadership it's easy to be a leader when times are good mm. but the true test of a leader is when times are tough so in that situation you know um what are you going to do? You know, there's a lot expected out of you. When you wear the rank you wear, someone's going to say, you going to do something about this? So, you know, the question is, hey, what are you going to do about it? You know, how can you take that situation? How can you disarm the situation to your benefit? So, uh, wow, that's powerful. So, so that's, that's good stuff. Thank you for that. Uh, so uh, real quick, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned about, hey, you know, our society is kind of going down the tubes a little bit, you know, uh, right. people sacrificing their comfort for the, you know, uh, instead of for the greater good. Right. Um, so, you know, it's funny, you know, we have a lot of stories that I call come full circle, you know, and we, we really don't know about it, you know, um, and, and if, you know, if they do, it's a bonus, you know, you're like, you know, hey, I did that or, you know, so about uh, 11 to 12 years ago, you know, when I graduated OCS, I, uh, I invited my family, close friends and close colleagues to uh, attend my commissioning ceremony at the Marine Corps Museum. So uh, one of my uh, fellow teachers invited her entire family, you know, I was glad she and her family were able to come, uh, but I really didn't think much about it. You know, right. um, didn't think much about it, you know, uh, you know, hope they had a good time. Um, so a year later, actually, I got in contact with her son because he wanted to become a Marine officer. Oh, wow. So it seemed that he was inspired by the commissioning ceremony that he decided he wanted to do something with his life for this country and that being a Marine officer was a noble calling. So, wow. you, know, um, you know, he graduated and got commissioned as a second lieutenant about two weeks ago. Wow. He's uh, currently at TBS right now. So nice. it goes to show you never know who's watching or the impact you'll have on anyone. So, mm. you know, there, you know, I like to think that there is still good young men and women out in the world in society who, you know, who want to do good and that, you know, we shouldn't lose our faith because of that. I like it. Like with my daughters, I want them to be Navy divers. I want my son to go Navy special warfare. I, I need them to serve. They have to give back. <laughs> JFK said it best. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That's the, the best quote I ever heard. I love it. So um, in closing, sir, any other things you want to share with me and my audience, sir? Well, I, I think we've uh, unpacked a lot today. You know, <laughs> yes. but uh, one of the yes. things we mentioned was uh, the dichotomy of leadership. And you'll hear that, you know, uh, you know, here and there, you know, and 
you'll hear that, hey, leadership is, is full of contradictions. You know, when do you enforce or when do you take actions, you know, on this versus this, you know, and, you know, and there is no one solution that fits all. And your solutions are usually based on your experience and making the right call. So, mm. you know, and if we don't have the experience, you know, and that's where, you know, we talk about mentorship, we talk about leaning on your staff NCOs and your senior enlisted leadership, you know, because they've been around longer than you and they have more experience than you. So, you know, the closing, like say is, hey, look, don't let your ego drive what you do. You know, uh, sometimes that pride can be your downfall. Mm. You know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Mm. Yes, sir. Check. I will take that put it in my my black box and work off of that again ego pride gotta watch those check so sir i just want to thank you for coming on past your limit podcast um a lot of wisdom shared in this uh episode really good stuff and uh we'll talk sometime soon sir all right well hey thanks for having me on and uh we'll definitely keep in touch yes sir Hoorah. take care